Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and this week we're speaking with Kelly Jo Ford about her debut novel, Crooked Hallelujah. It's the story of a family of women, starts off in Oklahoma and then moves to Texas, and it starts off... Uh, with one woman and then moves to focus on her daughter, Rainy. This was a really great conversation, and let's listen to it now. We have Kelly Jo Ford joining us today. Kelly Jo Ford is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. She is the recipient of numerous awards and fellowships, including the Paris Review's Plimpton Prize, the Everett Southwest Literary Award, the Indigenous Writer in Residence Fellowship from the School for Advanced Research, the Catherine Bakeless Mason Award at Breadloaf, and many, many others. Her fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, Virginia Quarterly, the Missouri Review, and the anthology 40 Stories, New Writing from Harper Perennial, among many other places. Her new novel is called Crooked Hallelujah, Crooked Hallelujah tells the stories of Justine, a mixed-blood Cherokee woman, and her daughter, Rini. The book travels back and forth in time between the 1970s and sometime in the near future, as Justine and Rini find and lose and find love, family, and their homes. Kelly, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. So, Kelly, your novel begins in Oklahoma, And I know that's where you grew up as well. And I wondered if you could just start by kind of setting the scene a little bit. I don't think that's a region of the country that's like quite as vivid in people's minds or is depicted as often in media. Maybe just tell us a little bit about the setting of your novel and what it was like for you personally to grow up there. Sure. So the book starts out in the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, which is in the northeastern corner of Oklahoma, but it takes place in Sequoia County within the nation, which is in the southern part of the Cherokee Nation. So it's kind of right there in the middle of Oklahoma in terms of north and south, right up against the border with Arkansas. And it follows the two youngest protagonists, really the two main protagonists, Justine and Rini. It follows them over the course of their lives, mostly as they move to North Texas to a fictional town called Bonita, and then just continue to be unsettled in different ways, particularly Justine and they, they go back to the Cherokee Nation, you know, are just kind of always pulled home and then leave again. And in terms of the landscape, there's one of the characters, Lula, who is a matriarch of the family. Throughout the novel, her daughter Justine sort of scoffs at how beautiful Lula thinks Sequoia County is with its rolling hills and you know, maybe scrubby trees. And it really is beautiful there, but it's something you, I think perhaps if you grow up there, you're just passing through, you have to open your eyes to its beauty because it's not this majestic beauty. Like the Rocky Mountains are going to grab you. It's something that maybe does seep into you, your bones a little. And it certainly did for Lula who never ever wanted to leave and was constantly painting its landscapes and the natural world there around her. And one thing to mention is Sequoia County is a county in Cherokee Nation, but it, I created a town that's kind of a conglomeration of places. Beulah Springs, the town the family lives in, is fictional, but you know it takes place in very real landscapes in the Cherokee Nation. And what kind of 
just in terms of how rural or what kind of development is there, you know, what is town life like there? Sure. It's a really small town, the fictional town I wrote about, but, you know, it's big enough to have a factory or two, a bar or two. And I think a lot of the towns in that part of the Cherokee Nation are like that. Although I would say there are probably aren't as many factories now as there were when I was growing up there in the 80s. But, you know, mostly it's small towns, some medium-sized towns, but part of Tulsa is in the Cherokee Nation. Tahlequah is the capital of the Cherokee Nation, and it might seem like a small town to people passing through from cities, but it's our capital, and there's a lot going on there. Ten Killer Lake, which I wrote about in the book quite a bit, that's a very real lake. It's giant, and it's just beautiful. You know, it's got rocky bluffs, and some of these places I wrote about, I've been to. I left Oklahoma, much like Rini did in the book. I left Oklahoma when I was a little girl, and I definitely go back. But when you go back to visit, it's not the same as living somewhere. And so some of the ways that I think about the book are kind of romantic. Like to me, Tin Killer is just like one of the biggest lakes there is. In reality, I don't know how big it actually is, but to a little kid growing up there, it's the lake. You know, it might as well be the ocean. It's so big, especially if you don't have a boat, traverse it just goes on and on and on. You mentioned that you moved from Oklahoma when you were a little girl. And the main characters in the book are also, they have this grounding in Oklahoma and within the Cherokee Nation, but they're also pretty itinerant in mm-hmm. terms of moving back and forth. And so, I mean, one question is, what was your childhood like? Are you very familiar with this kind of itinerant going back and forth, living in different places, making homes in different places? And then, you know, how much of that do you feel like you tapped for the stories here? We moved a bit when I was a kid. As an adult, I've been much more itinerant, I think. But I think sometimes maybe as a kid, you have to move once or twice. And that can be a really big impact on you. And I think I might have tapped into that feeling of it feeling like your whole world is, well, your whole world is shifting But, you know, just I might have tapped into that and brought that feeling into something that I exaggerated for plot purposes. And so we did move. And similar to Rini and Justine, what I think of as the bones of the book, Rini and Justine moving to North Texas, trying to start a new and better life. You know, the bones of the book, like that's really similar to my lived experience as a kid. I left Oklahoma and left the Cherokee Nation and then grew up in great part in North Texas. So kind of the bones of the book, I took a lot of inspiration from. And this is something I've definitely talked about a lot because it really is much of the inspiration of the book. You know, I also just come from a family of strong women. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because this book, I mean, so there's Justine and Rini, as we've mentioned, but there are these really forceful female characters. So did you, so you also had that experience as you grew up in a very matriarchal household? For sure. Yeah. You know, and especially when I was a little girl, there were times, and again, maybe kind of like the idea of like you move once or twice as a kid and it feels so outsized to your experience when you look back at the reality of it. But there were times, they were short, but there were times when I lived in a household with four generations of women, you know, my great grandmother, my grandmother, my mom, maybe a sister or two, maybe even a cousin or two, and me without any men there in that household because, you know, my great-grandfather had died. My grandfather had left the family. My mom wasn't married. So I grew up in a household just surrounded by these powerful women who were 
storytellers who had great heart, who were so funny and so strong and determined to make better lives, not really for themselves, but for everybody around them, the elder generations, their children, their children's children. So I just grew up kind of, and I'm still lifted up by the women in my family. You know, I'm a clearly grown adult with a daughter of my own, but I get around the elder women in my family and I just sort of just want to listen to them, you know, and ask them for advice. And I just, I lean on them so much. I continue to, and it's kind of thing where it's not just my mom, but her sisters too. Something that that you do so well in the book is you really translate that kind of matriarchal line to the way you tell your story. So in the beginning, reading it, I hope this isn't giving too much away, but it seems like it's a story about Justine and her mother. And then Justine becomes pregnant as a teenager. And then suddenly it's a story about her daughter and mm-hmm. her. But then there's also the grandmothers. And it's not something I saw coming at all. And so it really did have a kind of profound effect on me and in the way that a child or unplanned pregnancy suddenly does just upend things, you know, and it also made the story that much deeper. I wonder if you knew when you started writing that you were going to tell a multi-generational story or if, you know, Rainy just kind of popped up as you were writing. No, Rainy popped up as I was writing for sure. I started writing these short stories. Honestly, the very first short story I ever wrote was very similar to this family that I ended up writing about in Crooked Hallelujah and focusing on. And the place was the same. And so I was just writing short stories without an intention to tell a larger narrative. But they were just kind of the stories that when I sat down to write a new short story that poured forth. And the longer that that happened, the more I became familiar with these characters. And once I started writing about Justine, she to me, she's at the heart of the book. I mean, I don't know. Some people think of it as Rini's story, and I think it's their story because you can't separate one from the other, which is also how Lula and Granny, the elder generations, became such a big part of the book because the more I wrote about Justine, the more it became clear that you just can't separate this woman from who and really where she comes from. So I didn't set out with that intention, but the longer I wrote, you know, I just had this pile of work and it's like, there's a story trying to form here and I just need to clue into it, you know, and stop being so dense and craft the larger narrative, essentially. It also shows just how intertwined family fates are, that in a story of a family, the story of one member of the family is going to alter the story of someone else in that family, that it's really a a shared story in that way. I wondered if you could talk about religion in the book, in the region where you were born. If this very Christian strain is prevalent in the Cherokee Nation, I didn't know that. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure. The specific church or just Christianity in general? Yeah, the specific God-fearing church that this family, that Lula is a part of, and that kind of imparts a certain fear of God into Justine. And yeah, this specific church, but then maybe just the role that Christianity plays in general in the Cherokee Nation, if there are a lot of people who are Christian. Sure. I don't have data. And honestly, it's such a personal book for me that I didn't go and study Cherokee nations and how it's been influenced through Christianity through the years or anything like that. So I think there are people who can really speak to that much better than me, but I can tell you anecdotally that there are a lot of Cherokee people who are Christians. And I think perhaps for some people practicing traditional 
parts of culture might go hand in hand with their Christian beliefs and practices as well, kind of this melting pot, if you will. But when you look at a church that I'm writing about, like the Holiness Church, that wants to exclude worldly ideas and worldly practices and worldly meaning, sort of like things that are in and of the world, something as simple as going to a baseball game in some Holiness Churches, particularly, I think things have changed, you know, but particularly when I was growing up around Holiness Churches, you couldn't go to a football game or a baseball game and much less play for your school, which comes up in the book. But so when you're talking about a fundamentalist church of that nature, then other traditional cultural practices would be considered worldly, perhaps just in the way that going to a baseball game might, if that makes sense. But I do think there's this melding of Christianity in Cherokee culture, and speaking of the Cherokee Nation specifically, you know, we're right in the middle of the Bible Belt. And growing up, going to my great-grandmother's funeral, we sung hymns in Cherokee. I was a little girl, but, you know, hymns were sung in Cherokee and in English. And so there is a melding in that part of the country. And so you grew up in that kind of church as well? Yeah, you know, I grew up on its periphery because Again, the bones of the book, like my mom was raised in that church. And as an adult, she didn't most of the time continue to practice. And she didn't want to force me to grow up in a place that she felt like she needed to run from, essentially, I think, not to be too revealing of my mom's intentions. (laughs) (laughs) I got to experience the church as somebody who was there in and around it a lot, but also somebody who had the freedom to go home and like watch TV and wear my sweet Jerbo jeans or something, you know. But that kind of outlook that there's so many things that weren't proper that would lead to temptation. And did you internalize that? How did that affect you personally? And how did you kind of use it here with the characters? Interesting question. I'm sure that I did internalize it in a lot of ways that I'm not quite sure that I could articulate right now. But I suspect that over the course of my life, there's been a lot of working through that stuff. And so I don't think that I can articulate the specific ways that I internalized it. But I think of myself as a person who looks to, I don't have a religion, but I think of myself as a faithful person who thinks there's more going on than what we can see. And I think that's influenced the way that I live and the decisions I make. It's funny, I don't have a religion, but I'm a believer big time. And I wouldn't have been able to say that maybe except for living, I guess, seeing myself in comparison to people and relationships I have as an adult. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Kelly Jo Ford about her novel, Crooked Hallelujah, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're joined on the line today by Melissa Falavino, author of Tomboyland, who's going to give us this week's book recommendation. So Melissa, what book are you recommending? Well, thank you, Eric, for having me. I am recommending a memoir by Kiese Lehman called Heavy. And this book is not new, but it's only a couple years old. And it's a memoir about boyhood and race and the body. And it is extraordinary. It is so powerful. 
I just recently finished it. I don't know it took me so long to get to it, but I'm so glad I did. And it will stick with me for a long time. And I'll be teaching it this fall. And I just feel like it should be required reading now, maybe in particular, but it's just a, an incredibly powerful book. And, you know, that explores some pretty timeless subjects. Um, and it's also just emotionally so resonant and honest. And it's told in the second person, which is interesting to me. It's basically written as a letter to the author's mother. So it's uh, kind of formally kind of interesting and inventive too. So so Melissa, how did you first kind of like hear about Kiss's work and about Heavy? It was on my radar when it came out. Um, I was working as an editor at the time at Poets and Writers magazine. So I was getting galleys in every day. I was doing books coverage. I was, you know, mm. surrounded by galleys. And I had it. And I got the final copy actually um, sent to me by the publisher. And I kind of squirreled it away into the pile that I kept behind my desk, like all of the books that I really wanted to read. And so um, when I left that job, I just never got to it then because mostly I was doing other stuff. And um, when I left my job, I, I took a bunch of boxes of books with me, including those piles of the ones that I wanted to get to. And I think I was recently unpacking those boxes after like a year um, of keeping them stored in under my kitchen table and in the basement <laughs> and sort of overflowing all over the place. Uh, don't have enough room for any of the books in my apartment, but um, I found it and I was like, yes, this is, it is time. You know, that the way that like a book comes to you when exactly you need it. And um, it came to me and I devoured it in two days. And it was one of those experiences that I, I just wanted to read it over again immediately um, and now I've been recommending it to every single person who is around me, or <laughs> I guess that I'm talking to in the ether too. <laughs> Sounds great. Can you give us the title and the author's name one more time, please? Yes, it's called Heavy. Actually, I think the full title is Heavy, an American Memoir by Kiese Lehman. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Melissa Falavino, author of Tomboy Land. Thanks for your recommendation, Melissa. It's my pleasure. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Kelly Jo Ford, author of Crooked Hallelujah. I wanted to ask you if you would mind talking about what kind of believer you feel like you are. I just think that's, a, that's kind of an interesting... I, religion does play a huge role in this book, and I think each of the characters kind of goes through belief in a in an interesting way, in a particular way. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm just curious, what, what kind of believer do you feel like you are? Do you, do you identify as? Sure. I mean, so first of all, I say that I don't have a religion, but as soon as something happens that I'm unsure about, or that is frightening, or maybe someone is sick, I'm going to call my mom and my aunts to pray. Mm. So I'm a believer in the power of prayer. You mm -hmm. know, I don't, I don't pray with the same... Um, consistency and dedication and in the same way that they do, but I certainly believe in the power of prayer. So, you know, I, I do, and that's something that happens in the book. So that's one place that you see it is Justine, you know, she leaves the church and, and she never, never goes back to the church. But later in the book, you learn that throughout her life, she's called her mom Lula to ask her to pray for her when, when something's going on. And that's something that, you know, comes straight from my lived experience. So I understand and I know that there's great power 
in prayer. Um, and, and also just, you know, in other like ways of just thinking, uh, feeling, I guess, I guess faithful that we're where we need to be and things are working out as they need to, that, that kind of thing. It's quite honestly, it's a pretty hard stance to, to have right now, but yeah, I, I think yeah. in, in that way. So something that, that I think is, is really lovely about this book is, and you, you sort of talked about this earlier, is the way that the characters sometimes lose themselves in the landscape in which they're in. And this, you know, once Rini arrives in Texas, it's a very different, it's a very different kind of world that she enters into. So I was wondering, how did you think about landscape when you write? And is it something that you intentionally foreground and that you, that you think of as part of the story in which these characters live? I think that it's something that I think is a integral part of the story always. Those are the stories I'm most interested in, in terms of reading. And I don't know how to write differently. I don't, I don't think. And maybe that's why, as I said, the very first story I ever wrote came from these landscapes. Um, but so, but I don't know that it's intentional because I feel like, um, for me so far, the, the landscapes I've, I've written about have kind of seeped into my bones. And so when I sit down to write a story, I feel like the people really come from these places, you know, Hmm. um, it's almost a place first sort of, sort of situation for me when I, when I start to write a story. Really? It is, you know, and, and it's a really, you know, character driven book, but I feel like they come from these places. And I was talking to Becky Mandelbaum the other day, who has a great book out called the bright side sanctuary for animals. But, um, she's written a couple of books about Kansas, but she no longer lives there. And over the course of that conversation, I I realized that I, I just, I think that it feels like it would be incredibly hard to write a place that's based on research. Like, I feel like I really Mm. need to know a place to write about it. And so I have the greatest respect and admiration for people who can do that because it just seems like such a, an entirely different thing from when I, when I sit down to write a story, you know, it doesn't even seem like it's the same practice. Do you think that there's certain landscapes in U S literature that are just not, not as delved into in, in the same way, not as known by the, by the books that are written? Probably. But then again, I think it's maybe a matter of known by whom, you know? Yeah. Because I think that people who are readers, any any books that come out of an area, people get excited about if you're from one of those places that feels overlooked by, you know, mainstream publishing or media attention. I think people get get excited to see themselves reflected, especially if it's done well. So I think those books are out there, but they may not be the big books that people think about in literature. This is really a story about working people and people who are oftentimes barely getting by. And, and because it's, you know, multi-generational, I also think in a, in a subtle way, it's kind of an, a nod to the, the falsehoods of, of the American dream, that if you just work, work real hard, um, you can up your station in life easily. And 
I wondered if you could talk about that and just kind of painting a larger picture of um, this kind of hand to mouth life and seeing it through, um, you know, an entire family. I think it, um, I think you really described that well. And I don't know that I've, I've thought of it exactly in those terms that the multi-generational family and continued struggles is. I don't think that you were intentionally trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, write a novel about class, but because you're hewing close to characters and and it Mm -hmm. seems like a very realistic story, it it just comes out that way where you're, and that's, I think, the, Mm -hmm. the kind of the magic of writing about a family over time is that, you know, you, you start to see certain patterns and systemic issues uh, and you don't have to, you know, be writing a polemic for it to be pretty obvious. And I think that's something your, your novel does really well. Um, and also that the characters don't seem, you know, they, they're not rageful. They're very abiding. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that you see that reflected in these women. Um, So you see Lula who was working her way through school to try to be an art teacher. And, you know, and then suddenly her, her husband is gone and she has three daughters to raise on her own. And that dream is dashed forever. And she never really recovers, you know, financially because we see later that Justine is trying to take care of Lula and granny um, who are her mother and great grandmother, um, and you see a character like Justine who is working herself eventually until her body is literally broken from from the kinds of jobs she's able to get as a a woman who, as a girl, had had a child and was only able to get her GED and immediately try to get a good good job. And good job, I think, in that context, is you know a factory job with with benefits and in like insurances, like, you know, the, the golden ring, um, still. So I do think you see systemic issues that are reflected, like, you know, the idea that you can just bootstrap your way out of that, like, certainly it happens, but that's not, that's not the norm. Um, and again, you know, I'm writing from the lived experiences of people I grew up with and, and loved who spent their entire life working so incredibly hard trying to make a better life for the people around them, you know, and then once the jobs that they've been dedicated to their whole lives have dried up and gone, or once they're no longer able to do those jobs because their body has betrayed them. And then they're, they're left not a lot better than where they started, but, you know, unable to, to make, make that living, like, you know, achieve the, the American dream. So many of us were raised to think if you just work hard, you know, you you better your lot, and that's just it's just not the not the case for so many many people, particularly people who are facing systemic and structural issues. Yeah, and specifically to um, you know people of the Cherokee Nation or other Native people, um, do you see that yeah playing out in a in a way that's you know unique at all? Yeah, for sure. I don't, I don't feel like I can speak to it, um, you know, in depth, but, but certainly. I don't think this is giving anything away um, in terms of, of your book, but it ended in a really surprising place, I thought. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, travels, you sort of time travel and it's 
from the about the 19 mid 1970s right into an uncertain near future sometime mm -hmm. from where we are now and the thing that really rears its its head in the last in the last chapter and i so i i want to make this as like spoiler proof as possible <laughs> but it's it's essentially climate change Mm -hmm. Right. That there is. And it's, you know, it's actually it's not so different from what we're seeing right now, which is the, you know, massive fires in California, storms, <laughs> fire, NATOs, things that are I, I think were relatively unimaginable, probably only, you know, a decade ago or something. So I want to ask what role climate change played for you as you were writing this book, because its entrance feels so forceful to me and the ways in which the characters deal with it is really interesting. And it's, it's a way in which I think you, you sort of tie a lot of things together and you bring religion back into it. But yeah, I, I was wondering if you had, if you were anticipating that kind of huge disruption to their lives um, and if climate change is something that you were thinking about throughout the book. It is, um, and certainly in in the later half when they're you know like weather. I think weather is present throughout the book. I I think, but certainly in the second half of the book, you you know there are droughts and tornado. You know, there was a tornado story that didn't make it in into the book, but you know so so I I feel I wanted there to be a sense of just ramping up, even if it was gradual, and that it was something that may not be recognized by a reader until they looked back and said, oh this is something that has clearly been pro progressing. And, and it is definitely right. something I, I was anticipating on a personal level. And you asked me earlier in what ways I might be a believer. And, and that is, that is probably one remnant is I'm sort of, you know, sort of been waiting weirdly, like waiting, waiting on our, our demise mm. for my whole life, maybe, <laughs> you know, <Really? laughs> Pro probably, probably. Yeah, I describe myself as a very faithful person, but sometimes those things can go hand in hand, I mm -hmm. guess. But yeah, so I, I was anticipating that. And I'm, I'm somebody who I'm, I'm kind of a, a, a nervous person as well. So, you know, two, two tornadoes and, and one month or two hurricanes converging, like, you know, I start thinking about signs and, and, you know, things like that. Um, and I've always been like that, though, as a kid, um, you know, and th this is slightly different, but I was, uh, as this comes up in the book, too, I was always the first one to the seller. Um, oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes, I, I was anticipating that. And I think what, what made me interested in that kind of story, you know, again, it's a, like, a, it's a very character driven book, but I, I was very interested in what what happens when it feels like the world is crumbling around you, when you have family, particularly if you've had disagreements with, and you've had this, just this long history, what, what have becomes of those personal relationships with the people who mean the most to you, even if you're far away or you're not getting along, you know, what, what becomes important in those, in those times. And I think that's what, what drew my interest, but I was certainly, you know, always have, one eye on the horizon as a, as just a human being. Yeah. Were you, were you also brought up that way? Did your, did your mother or any of the, the women that you lived with sort of anticipate the end? I think that can also be a remnant of, of, you know, 
tough times. Yeah. If you try to anticipate the worst, then you can try to have control over things you may not have much control over, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's what my therapist said. (laughs) (laughs) We're probably all being reminded of that by our therapists at the moment. Um, So it's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, Sorry, Kate, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's so hard these days. Um, it's so hard these days, you know, if you, if you anticipate the end, I mean, the signs, the signs are all over the place. I wonder, and I think a lot of us, you know, beyond wondering what we can do, it's about wondering, how do you live with that? How do you, how can mm-hmm. you persist at feeling like the end is so near and, um, knowing that the planet has been destroyed to this level. I'm just wondering if you have any things you say to yourself or things you do that, that help you cope. Sure. I mean, I think it's a, it's a day by day issue. And I think for me, it it comes um, down to trying, trying to take the action that I can to do some part, which feels absolutely inadequate. Anything I might do right now feels inadequate. Everything feels so immense. Um, it is immense, but perhaps that's where finding community is important so that you don't feel like you're a drop in the well. You you hear a bigger splash, you know, from the community that you're a part of. But I, I do think it just comes down to doing kind of a, a mindfulness sort of thing, in, meaning that you immerse yourself into the tasks of the moment and of the day, because if you look too far ahead, it's just too easy to despair, I think. And I say that, especially as somebody who has a, a young daughter right now, um, I, I just get lost when I think about what is going to be happening. You know, I mean, on one hand in three months, you know, um, but you know, it much less in, 15 years, what, what it's going to look like. Um, so I don't know. And then I, I hate the idea that like, you know, that, that we've kind of crapped on the world so much. And then it's like, Oh, but Hey, there are these really inspiring young people who are going to make it better. That's, that's a real shitty deal for them. But I, I do think that, um, I look at, at kids right now who are 15, 18. And I just feel like they're in such different places than I was um, in terms of their awareness of what's happening in the world and their ability to, to engage with one another to, to make a difference. And so I'm really hoping that despite the shitty hand we've dealt that, I don't know, people can get it together with the, the, that maybe we're in good hands moving forward, certainly better than the hands they were in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I was going to try to to end on a more positive note. I mean, I think that is a positive note. It is a positive note because I, I think you are. It does seem, you know, it seems right that it it um, hopefully the hands that we're being passed into are capable, and they certainly seem it. But it also, I think, you know, one of the, the lovely points of the, your novel is that it ends in that sort of the trust in the human connection, mm-hmm. kind of that it it feels like Rini sort of gives herself over to that, that there's, you know, that she, she trusts in the relationship between herself and her mother. And she trusts that that will take care of her in a way, even if her mother's actually physically not there. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's something it's, I mean, it's, a, it's also a leap of faith, I think, that she's taking in the end is a quite different one than the kinds that her, 
her mother and her grandmother take, but that she sort of takes on her own, that her leap of faith is, okay, I will give myself over to the care of the relationships I have with other people. Mm-hmm. Does that seem like a right reading of, of kind of where where this character ends up? It really does. And and I feel feel like for me that the very ending of the book, to me, I it's a it is it's a hopeful book. It's a hopeful mm-hmm. ending to me. And it is in great part just um, as you said, these characters have spent their entire lifetimes pushing and pulling at one another, trying to establish themselves as I as individuals, even as they run to one another in care or in need. And I I think of their their last moments together um, as kind of this this they're they're exhaling and they're letting go of all that pushing and pull, pulling and they're they're trusting in one another and they're mm-hmm. you know I almost you know Rini at one part de- describes I have never thought of this in this way but at one part Rini describes she and her mom Justine as two parts of one whole. Um, earlier in the book when she's a teenager. And I think the course of the book is, is them pulling apart. That whole is pulling apart as Rini grows older. Um, And I think in those final moments to me that, that whole they're, they're once again whole. Well, that seems like a lovely place to end and the promise of wholeness. Thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us. Thank you all. It's so good to talk to you. I appreciate your time. And it's nice to think about the book in a, in a different way. You all had some great questions that um, I kind of want to take notes after our talk now. <laughs> <laughs> that was the point. That was the point. We've been, notes. We've been speaking with Kelly Jo Ford. Her new book is called Crooked Hallelujah. Congratulations again, Kelly. Thank you all. Take care. We've been speaking with Kelly Jo Ford, author of Crooked Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.